And this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, I am with the one and only Roger Ingram. So, Mr. Roger, it's been such a joy to know you over the years. So, uh, good to have you on the show, my friend. Yeah. And um, I like the fact that you refer to me as Mr. Roger. It's kind of like Mr. Roger's Neighborhood. Yeah, here exactly. I, here I am in my neighborhood, the, the, my <laughs> home built my home built by a trumpet playing. And it's a beautiful day, too. It is a beautiful Where's your sweater? Oh. That's well, you know, I'll tell you what. See, I'm out here in Lagrange, Illinois. It's a it's a western suburb of Chicago. It's about 17 miles uh, due west of downtown Chicago. And this small and the last couple of days, I actually went out and rode my bike. Um, right now, it's snowing and in the 20s. It's like the snow is coming down hard. We got about two inches on the ground already. So you know, yeah. It's nuts. I mean, yes, the two days ago here was, you know, uh, in the mid 50s, push, or actually in the 60s. And then uh, now it's like, you know, in the low 40s. It's yeah. Insane. Well, you know, also Chicago, you know, we're on the lake there and uh, Lake yeah. Michigan. It, it brings an interesting, uh, uh, interesting uh, weather colors. You know, it's like it just <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I actually I love it because I grew up in Southern California and it was like. I remember like a bunch of 80 degree Christmases and stuff. It was just kind of weird, you know, because, you, you know, the night before, you know, on Christmas Eve, you're all watching, you know, the Bing Crosby movies and everything. You right. see the snow and then we get up the next morning, it's 80 degrees, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, and after going on the road, when I started doing a lot of traveling and I started like uh, the mid 70s, I started already going on the road. You know, I kind of gravitated to people from the East Coast and the Midwest, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, I eventually I'm, I moved to New York and I was there for 17 years and now I've been here for 11 years. Vicki and I been married going on 11 years. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of like the weather and, and, and it gives you an excuse to buy a lot of nice clothing. Exactly. Because uh, out in LA, Everybody wears like flip flops and Hawaiian shirts and shorts, and you can actually get by all year on that, you know, except for yeah. ooh, maybe a get down to 45 in February, you know. But I mean, it's like I, I kind of like being in an environment where style is addressed a little bit more readily just because of the fact that we're forced to have to wear a, a, a more garments, especially during the the fall and the winter. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm I I like my clothes, so yeah, I'm with you on that. I I like having a nice uh nice seasonal wardrobe to work with. Nice background, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Is uh this is like this is where this is my computer right now where I do a lot of stuff. Sometimes I'll I'll set up the lights and everything over in the practice area. But uh, I got a lot of horns out right now. I'm in the middle of, of doing a mass cleaning on all my horns. Uh, because of COVID, it's really good to be a little more hygienic, you know, as far as uh, keeping your horns clean. So they're all piled over there right now. So I I apologize for the rather dank background that we have here right now. Okay. Just as, as long as I don't see, you know, like any, you know, apparitions or, or uh, you know, things like that going on in the background. No, yeah, okay. the, the, the only thing we have back here that most people don't see nowadays is books. Uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, 
there's, there's a lot of book reading going on in our household, you know. Well, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, well, let me let me ask you this, uh, Roger. Um, actually, we'll talk about this a little bit. Uh, recently, I was uh, I had on the show uh, Josh Rozepka. Oh uh, yeah, friend of yours, and um, Josh was uh, talking to me about uh, your work ethic and saying that you know for someone who is as accomplished as you are you still have this desire to push your limits you know to to take yourself into some uncomfortable places i mean you 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 built quite a career for yourself as as a lead trumpet player but you know he said that that you're just like really diving headlong into the the legit stuff uh and doing a lot more of that these days so i mean can you kind of talk through that process and you know what is it that drives you to to go beyond where you are right now and, and look at uh, new ways of expressing yourself? Well, you know, you look at other professions, like uh, being a general contractor or being a landscaper. You know, it's like sitting down and practicing my trumpet during the day is a lot easier than roofing houses in like July or August. You know what I mean? It's not such yeah. an onerous task. To sit down and, ooh, I tell my students, oh, poor baby, you got to sit down and actually play the trumpet. You know, the thing is, is, is I love music and I and I love trumpets and I love trumpet players. And I'm sure there's some people out there perhaps listening to this. Of There's a, a ton of trumpet players that I admire and I respect and I and I try to learn from just from listening. But, you know. Um, it's not such a hard thing. It's like my whole life is built around the fact that I was able to carve out a career as a musician, which I'm very pleased about that. So, and, you know, and I have to sit in the, in the summertime, I have to sit in an air conditioned home and practice my trumpet. In the wintertime, I have to sit in a nice home that's heated and practice my trumpet. You know, it's not such an onerous task. It's not, it's not really a hard thing to do. Um, if, if you want, I can give you kind of a, a rundown of what I do during the day. Um, you know, my, you see the, the ceiling tiles. Right. I do a lot of recording here now, especially the last year. I have a recording studio set up here in my house. And I sit in the recording studio is actually we have mics and baffles around my practice area. So when somebody sends a file and they, and I need to put on a trumpet part, I just sit down at my practice area where I've been sitting. We've been here for like 11 years and I just pull it out and I push record because I got the Royer mic and the Coles mic just all sitting there. And then I play what I have to play, but I also practice there too. When there's not any kind of a, a session or something that I have to do and I get up at, I get up pretty much when the sun comes up and I'll do my whole thing where I'll warm up the, the, the warm up that Bobby Shoe showed me when I was a kid, which means you start with just warming up your body first, you know, like stretching and like that and get the intercostal muscles between the ribs, like kind of warmed up. By moving like this, you can actually see films of old films of Maynard. He used to do that too. And the lower abdominals. And I I start taking some deep breaths. Like, you know, because basically as brass players, we're, we're all human air compressors. You pull in 
uh, you inhale air and you blow it out with a little bit of force. It's just like what an air compressor does. So you have to get the mechanism and the apparatus kind of warmed up before you even bring the trumpet or the trumpet mouthpiece into it. If you want to survive and not hurt yourself, you know, and it's yeah. like, so I get all that going and doing the flapping and the free buzzing, you know, you know, and I buzz things and I get it going and then I bring the mouthpiece in, you know, and I let it sit there and, you got to realize, um, and this is still all in answer to your question. Um, you got to realize that, you know, the only natural instrument is the human voice. I mean, all these instruments we played are all man-made things. Our lips weren't designed to have a circular piece of brass pressed up against it for hours at a time, you know. So, But we love doing this, and we came up with these instruments. And so... The whole idea of warming up is to help you to survive the process without hurting yourself to the point to where you can't do it anymore. And so you want to get your body going. You want to get the blood flowing. You want to get the mouthpiece going. And just step by step, you know, buzz the mouthpiece a little bit. And then you bring the horn into the process. You blow some air through it. get it warmed up and then you know just play some long tones and so i i go through that whole process maybe six or six thirty a.m my whole family sleeps through it which is great and vicky's got some incense burning right now that's where those little smoke things are going um and so the whole family like they don't care because if it wasn't for trumpet playing we wouldn't have this place you know? and, gotcha. and uh, then I do about a half an hour and and I start thinking about trying to get the sound right the first thing I think about is it's like you have to you have to find your technique anew every day a piano player goes up to a piano and they just go and there's your sound a brass player we have to create our sound we have to find it every day and you can't force it you have to let it come and so you know mid register just i'll get moving around i'll play you know some little bit of maybe an etude or i'll i'll improvise a blues or something just in the mid register just to try to get it flowing and then I'll open up the Schlossberg and I'll try to imitate or mock up the scenario that I'm playing like principal trumpet with like the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra or something like that. I mean, I'll try to approach playing as an orchestral player because it, 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 it makes you think about your attack and your sound, even though I'm mainly interested in being like a, a big band lead trumpet player or a session player. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of player you want to be. You should try to have an orchestral standard to your technique. Try to keep everything clean and in tune. And I'll put the tuner up there and I'll play four or five pages from the Schlossberg book in front of the tuner and try to make every, make sure everything's locking in. That's what I'll do for the first half hour. And then, you know... I'll let the cat upstairs so she can look out the windows and I'll get uh, my breakfast and I'll get some coffee for Vicky. I'll wake Vicky up 
And then I'll, I'll go sit back down. I leave the horns out and I'll just sit back down and I'll do another half an hour. So I'll start with, I'll do Clark. I, I run my basic fundamentals every day. I'll run stuff out of Clark, Arben, and, and uh, Schlossberg and the top tones for the trumpeter just to keep my technique at an acceptable level because I get called to do recordings and shows. Right. So you have to keep your technique clean. That doesn't mean I'm just handcuffed to just doing exercise books. I mean, after I've done four or five half an hour sessions working out of stuff like that, as the, the day starts going through the day, early evening, I'll put on Abersol's. And I'll look at the changes and I'll try to negotiate myself through a bunch of tunes because a lot of gigs I, I got are called in Chicago. They call them jobbing dates, you know, and mm. on the East Coast, they call them club dates uh, on the West Coast. They call them casuals, you know, yeah. but I have to improvise a lot. And now that I've gotten off the road, I got off the road 11 years ago where I was just, for 35 years, I was just playing lead trumpet on big bands and stuff, sitting next to some of the greatest jazz trumpet players in the world, like Greg Gisbert and Leroy Jones and Dan Miller, you know. Yeah. Now, and I absorbed a lot from he hearing those guys every night, and I saw the little vehicles they would use, and sometimes they would repeat certain things in their cells. So from all that and what Bobby Shu showed me about how to learn a tune and working through chord changes towards the end of the, my practice day here. I, uh, I, I improvise and I also work on C trumpet and piccolo trumpet. And, and that was very nice of Josh Rezepka to mention that and say that because, but it's true. And, and it's like, how do I feel about doing that? Like I said, it's better than roofing houses in the middle of August. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's or yeah. like working retail at a Starbucks or something. And I'm not saying those jobs are bad. I'm saying I'm very fortunate to be able to have carved out a life just playing the trumpet and being involved with music. So I show it some respect by actually sitting down and keeping my chops and my technique at a high standard. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's it's like the least I can do for what I've been blessed with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I, I get you 100%. And I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, you, you don't learn in school. You learn it through through the life experience. And I've had this uh, conversation with a lot of younger musicians. Uh, I've been, uh, well, I wasn't this year because of uh, COVID, obviously, but uh, I've been involved with uh, some amusement park work and going in and, and rehearsing bands and things like that. And, and I would often hear from the kids, you know, Oh my God, this is such a grueling schedule. And, you know, I don't know how I'm going to make, I'm like, look, dude, yeah, you're, you, 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 you've, you've, you've got four shows that you got four 20 minute shows Ooh. to do a day. <laughs> um, that's suck not, it that's up. not so bad. Yeah. You're getting, you're getting, you're getting paid to do, do what you love. And, you know, and you, and, and you have to play with you get a new trumpet and a new case and you get to hold it and play i mean it's like it's a beautiful thing i tell my yeah. students i say you know um if you're interested in doing something regardless of what you're up against you'll find a way to do it if you're not interested in doing something you'll find an excuse and exactly. if you and if you find yourself coming up with excuses to your 
teachers and to your band leaders who ask you why you kind of suck today or whatever, um, maybe you should find something else to do. I mean, because it's not, it's not, it's a blessing to be able to carve out a career as a musician. Believe me, it's like the least you can do if you, if you're honest with yourself is practice or I don't even look at it as practicing. I just play the horn. Just, I mean, if you have to be told to play, find something else to do, be an accountant. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you're one of those people. There, not everybody who can do can teach, and um, you know, you definitely have the the acumen. You have the the experience as a world class player, but you know, you also have developed into and have the reputation of being a world class educator. So, was the education part uh, something that was big to you even in the beginning phases of your career, or was this something you kind of grew into? Well, you know, I, I try. I try to be a good teacher. I try to be a good educator. And I, I size up my students, and I tailor make my lesson plan for them per individual. And... Um, I never ever thought I was going to be a teacher when I, when I, yeah, I started playing when I was eight and my family was very poor, so we couldn't afford lessons. So I self-taught until I got into high school. And then I started mowing lawns and taking lessons from Rune Holt and Bobby Shue and stuff like that. You know, cause you know, I grew up in LA and I had was surrounded by like some <laughs> greatest players in the world. It's like, you know, it's like you go into Hollywood, you see John Audino and Chuck Finley and, buddy children's running around and they were all really friendly guys and they knew i was this young kid interested in playing the trumpet and they were all really beautiful cats man bobby was a beautiful cat everybody was so beautiful and so all i wanted to do was just play and you know and and i saw people like and this is like the early 70s i saw them buying homes and putting their kids through college from just sitting in the recording studio Playing mm-hmm. trumpet, I said, "What a beautiful existence, man!" Sign and, me up for and, that. And and you know, it's like, and what I realize about these guys is they were all just trying to be professional. They were trying to be good. They were trying to show up on time and do a good job. And they let everybody else decide who was the best trumpet player in the world, the best this and that, the best and that. All anybody really wanted to do was just work. Yeah. You know, it's like let let all the critics uh, voice their opinions about who's the best. We don't care. All we want to do is just continue working. So mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do. And then when I was like 10th grade, 11th grade, my high school band was really an exceptional high school band because of my band director, John Ronaldo, who was also a great trumpet player. And we got a big reputation in the LA area as being this hot high school band. And, and I was the lead player in it. And the junior high trumpet players started asking me if I, they could take a trumpet lesson with me. And, and I, we were living in Eagle Rock. And so I started, and I wasn't even charging them any money. I said, well, why don't you just come over to the house? And I don't know what, what do you need? I mean, so right there, 
I started realizing that uh, the teacher's job is to serve. I, I soon realized that, you know, I'm there to try to help, to try to serve. And so I started having little students, you know, I mean, that not little students, but little you know, I, Roger, I became a junior teacher. You know, I started right. to learn 15 or 20 minutes. They come to my house and I started experiencing teaching. So all during this time, I'm studying with Bobby Sue and Laroon Holt. Now, Laroon Holt was a great uh, technician on the trumpet. He was the second trumpet player on the Lawrence Welk show for years. And, and mm -hmm. I was studying with him during this time. He's the one who put me through the Ivan book and the Clark book and the Salzburg book. Bobby Shue... It was a completely different thing for me. He he's taught me about the mechanics of how the embouchure and the aperture work. He showed me the yoga breath. He explained backboards and cup sizes and mouthpieces. And I sat sat next to him on Louis Belson's band, and I got a lot of great experience from him about how to approach being a, a big band lead trumpet player. You know, mm -hmm. so all during this time I'm studying with those guys. One time I came over to Bobby Shoes for house for a lesson. And he said, uh, you know, hey, Roger, um, I hear you've been giving some trumpet lessons. And I said, yeah, you know, like the, some of the, the younger kids at school wanted to come over. So he goes, good. Today I want you to give me a trumpet lesson. And I was like, what? <laughs> he goes, no, okay. I, I want you to give me a trumpet lesson. I want you to treat this time that we have together today as a trumpet lesson for me. And I said, okay. And I sat down and I started giving Bobby a trumpet lesson and he would stop me every five or 10 minutes and say, that's not how you do that. The best way to approach this particular uh, aspect of the lesson is to do it this way and do it this way. He taught me how to teach mm -hmm. at that lesson. And he did that to me and he would be unexpected about it too. Cause he didn't want me to come over prepared for that. Right. He sprung it on me. Yeah. And he did that to me two or three different times. And he, he taught me how to uh, be a teacher. Now, just recently um, there was a student that had been studying with me and he had a problem with his braces. He had the braces taken off and he had problems playing with it because the body hadn't adjusted to the, the, the muscle memory yet for the, the, you know, the surface. Right. And uh, he went and took some lessons with Bobby online. And then Bobby got back to him. He goes, how come you haven't done this? And how come you haven't done that? It's like he kind of bitched me out. He's still doing it to me, you know. <laughs> and so I, I had to rethink. Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, really, but, and, and I was saying, well, you know, it's, it's challenging when you're dealing with a, uh, with a cat in, uh, in junior high school, when you're teaching them online and there's no band for them to play in, they can't incorporate what I've been showing them in a, in a, in a platform where there's music to even see if what I'm showing them works. It's been very challenging the last year because these kids don't have a band to play in. Right. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, as far as my, my teaching is concerned, um, I'm, I'm always trying to improve, you know, as a teacher. And, um, I, I feel that, that, 
I have never told anybody anything that's going to cause them any harm. And I'm not real dogmatic about my approach. To, to further answer this question, a lot of my ability to teach came from this. When I first, when I graduated high school, um, I did a short tour with the Quincy Jones Big Band. Okay. It was called the Quincy Jones Big Band, featuring the Watts Line singers and dancers and introducing the Brothers Johnson. And Quincy had just finished producing their album, and he wanted a big band full of young people. Mm-hmm. Ted Nash was in that band. My roommate was Tom Kubis. And, and you know, Shahib Shahab was playing Barry because baritone sex because Quincy wanted somebody out there who was an old friend of his. So he asked somebody to hang with while he was out there because we were all (laughs) kids, you know? Right. And so I did that. And then afterwards I toured for a year playing lead trumpet for Connie Stevens. And then, um, Tom Jones's management called my house and offered me the job playing lead trumpet for Tom Jones. So I took that gig and I was with him for about six years. Now, um, Bobby Shue, who had also done the Tom Jones gig maybe 10 years before me, um, and I was 18, and um, this was the 70s, and AIDS hadn't come around yet, and I was already smoking cigarettes and drinking beer because on, on all these bands I was on, I was always the baby. And I was trying to, you know, try to keep up with the older people. So I got into some bad habits early and nothing that was detrimental to me being able to handle the job or be a professional. But I was I was turning into kind of a wild kid already. Mm-hmm. So Bobby said to me um, when I went out, he said, now, look, don't make a career out of touring with Tom Jones you know, I don't want you to get lost out there. And he goes, now I know what you're going to do. You're going to go out there and have a good time and party and make a lot of new friends. He said, but I want you to stay focused. He said, so what I want you to do is, I mean, he was talking to me like he was my dad, you know, And, and he was saying, I want you to take a trumpet lesson from everybody, from any or everybody in any of these major cities that you can while you're out there touring. So, when I was with Tom Jones in those days, we'd do a week at a time at like at the Mill Run Theater in Chicago, a whole week, uh, the Westbury right. Music Fair, a whole week. We would play uh, venues all up and down the East Coast and we'd be there for a week. So after your first day, you get in there and you do the, the sound check rehearsal and you do the first show. From then on out for the rest of the week, my, my days are free. So... When I was in New York, for instance, I took one lesson from William Vacchiano. I took a series of lessons. I took one lesson with Roy Stevens. I took a series of lessons with Carmen Caruso. I took a series of lessons with Jerry Cowett. When I was in Philly, I took a lesson from Dr. Donald Reinhardt. When I was in Chicago, I took a lesson from uh, Reynolds Schilke. And so I started taking lessons with everybody, and, and, and I started – keeping focused like the way Bobby Shue said I should do, you know? And, and the only thing that I'm very dogmatic about is to 
not be dogmatic in my yeah. approach to students. And by, by trying to tell them there's only one way to play the trumpet. And if you don't do it my way, there's a, pe- a lot of people who put out books and they, they, they make the mistake of saying this is the only way to play. What it is, it's the only way to play for them because mm-hmm. it works so well for them. They write it up and they think that it should be universally applied. It's not so, you know, and and it's like, I mean, and granted, I know these people really believe in some of these things that they come up with because it worked for them. And I think that's fantastic. But don't try to convince people that it's the only way to play, that it can be universally applied. And that's it, you know, because when when I finally got to Chicago and I took a lesson with Reynolds Schilke. Reynolds Schilke said, okay, well, who have you been studying with? And I, and I mentioned Laroon Holt, who he knew of because Laroon was a busy session guy in L.A., at least with the Warren's Workshop. And I said, and I listed all the books he's doing, and Laroon had me learn the Haydn Trumpet Concerto, and, and he helped me and my schoolmates with Bugler's Holiday for our spring concert and, you know, more legit kind of stuff. Got my legit right. chops together with him. And then I mentioned Bobby Shue. And he goes, oh, Bobby Shue, you know, you know, he's a great jazz player and a lead trumpet player. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, who else have you studied with? And I said, well, um, I took a lesson with William Vacchiano. He goes, oh, how's Bill doing? You know, and, and I said, oh, great. You know, and I listed everybody off. He goes, all right. So, what, what are all these teachers telling you? And, you know, Shuki was kind of a gruff guy. You know, he, it mm-hmm. was, you know, I mean, he wonderful trumpet player and horn designer, as we all know. He played principal with Chicago Symphony for years, you know. And, uh, and I said, well, they're all kind of telling me the same thing, but in their own way, you know. And he goes, well, what's one of the things they tell you? And I say, well, they say, fill up the horn with air. And what I learned from him was from his next statement to me. He goes, fill up the horn with air. And he had horns hanging on the wall of his little studio there. Up, And he would give his, he gave me the lesson upstairs at the Wabash factory. You know, yeah. he goes, see that horn up there on the wall? It's already full of air. Your job is to move the air. And man, did that just make mm. a, light bulb go off of my head and and i was with tom jones and we had a week at the mill run theater which is not there anymore it was a theater in the round the stage went around you know don't fill up the horn he said fill up the horn with air with what so until it pops he goes you don't fill the horn with air you move the air your job is to move the air and i went to work that night and something just clicked. It's still with me today. That one piece of information after all these lessons I took with these great teachers and trumpet players, the one thing that Reynolds Schilke told me maybe affected me more than any other teacher, except for maybe the things that Bobby Shute told me, you know, and, it's, and it, and it, and it made me remember what Bud Brisbane told me when I had the opportunity to take a couple lessons with him in LA uh, two or three years earlier uh, when I was about 16, uh, Bud Brisbane said it's airspeed. He goes, when, when you want to ascend in the upper register, it's not about creating more air. It's taking the same amount of air you've been using in the mid and up and mid upper register 
and get get it going fast. He said, that's why we do this thing called the yoga breath, because the yoga breath, if you do it properly, increases PSI. And remember what I said to you? We're all human air compressors. It's right. like it's like the yoga breath helps you compress the air so it gets moving fast. It's faster air up there, not more air. I mean, the, the, the surest way to fail developing your upper register is to try to, to see how much air you can blow in there. You know, it's no, it's, it's speed up the air you already got. The yoga breath was not designed to, to enable you to take the world's biggest breath. You can take the yoga breath with, uh, with small amounts of air, medium amounts of air, large amounts of air. Bud Brisbane said to me, the amount of air you bring in is only determined by how long you need to sustain a particular note or phrase. It's not the, what register you're playing in does not determine the amount of air you bring in. What register you're playing in determines on how fast or slow you get that air moving. Mm -hmm. So as far as me teaching I had a lot of experiences taken from a lot of different teachers, and some of them had real dogmatic attitudes too. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know? And and I and and Bobby warned me about that before I started going on the road doing this. He said a lot of people are going to say this is the only way you should play, and there's only one way to play, and just take it with a grain of salt or tongue in cheek, you know, like all right, you know, mm -hmm. and just let it go. And he said because. When it comes to gathering information, it's all good. Mm -hmm. Even if someone gives you a bunch of terrible information, you can remember that and say, that's the most terrible information I've ever gotten in my life. And you keep it in your file, you know? Exactly. So as far as me being a trumpet teacher, all I can reflect upon is the fact that I, you know, studied it took at least one lesson with a lot of different great players. In L.A., I, I took a lesson with Manny Klein. Um, I took a series of lessons with James Stamp. Um, you know, I, some of these great players that I've had a chance to sit next to, whether they knew it or not, they were giving me a trumpet lesson. For, for you know, I lived in New York for 17 years, and I used to uh, sub for Daryl Shaw on the Broadway show Chicago. And even though I was in and out of town a lot, I was actually based out of New York. I never really got to stay in there because I was just so handcuffed to going out with, on the road. I got known as a guy, Roger, going on the road. Yeah. But when I would be in, Daryl Shaw started keeping track of what my schedule is, and he'd have me sub on Chicago, and I got to sit next to John Frosk. And I became like one of Daryl's first call subs to do that because Frosk liked playing with me. And I got to do that for about seven years. And we're talking John Frost. We're talking about a guy who used to be the first trumpet player on The Tonight Show when it was in New York. You know, one of the greatest session players ever. And and I got along with him, you know. And, uh, um, and then I finally, you know, I moved to Chicago. And then he left the show. So I'm, and I kind of lost track track of john frost right now i don't know what he's doing i think he's just hanging out on his boat <laughs> but uh it, it that was a trumpet lesson for me every single show even though it was the same show i would learn a little some different stuff you know and 
so as far as absorbing information, if you're open-minded, I tell my students, you know, that's one of the greatest lessons you can have and you get it for free. In fact, I got paid for having those lessons with John Frost. And if you love it, and if you want to do it, it's just like, you know, it, it goes to what one thing Bobby Shu told me when I was a kid. He said, Roger, it's not necessarily the exercise you're playing. It's how you think about it when you're playing it. And mm-hmm. when I used to go sit and do Chicago and sit next to Frost, it wasn't necessarily the show we were playing. It's how I would think of his interpretation of it that I learned from. Yeah. In fact, Frost, Frost wanted me to learn his book. He wanted, because I was going in on the second book. He said, well, I want you to learn the first book so I can call you to sub. And I and I didn't want to sub on the first book because then I wouldn't get to sit next to Frosk. So I just was like, oh, okay, okay. And then I go on the road with Harry for a month or two and I come back and he goes, so, and, I, and I'd be back in on the second book. And Frosk said, so did you learn the first book? And I said, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't have time to like learn out i will i will and he was like well okay because you know it's like i like to call you in the sub for me and i never did because it wouldn't be as much fun because you know i mean i was subbing on a lot of shows it's not like i I didn't need to do it that bad to where i go in and play the first book and have to you know and i'm not saying that whoever i'd be sitting next to on the second book i wouldn't learn from them too but it was so much fun because he was such an old school cat, man. I mean, real old school attitude. I mean, a lot of people said, uh-oh, you're going to sub on Chicago and sit next to Frost. He, if you're not playing a Bach, he's going to not like you, you know? And I was like, and I was playing a Shilky in those days. And about five years into me showing up with a Shilky, he finally looked at me on a, in between uh, tunes he said, what kind of horn is that? And I said, it's a Shoki. He goes, ah, oh, sounds good. <laughs> that was it. After there all this time, people saying, oh, he's not going to like you if you play. He didn't care. He really didn't care. Now, of course, you know, I mean, I I, I was uh, instrumental in designing the horn by Exo Brass, the 1600i, you know, that, that um, is manufactured by the Jupiter Band Instrument Company. Exo is their professional line. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Fedchuk, uh helped was instrumental in designing a great uh, uh, a jazz lead trombone that they they make too. So I mean, the thing is that Frost didn't care, and so you know sometimes people get the wrong impression about it. He 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 was I mean he was an old school cat, but he was he was friendly. You know, it's like mm-hmm. and his flugelhorn. He I don't think he liked flugelhorn so much because he had polka dots. He had put polka dots all over his <laughs> blue horn, you know. So I, I, that was a long way around to answer your question, but you know, it's like as far as me teaching, I have to reflect on how I learned, right? You know, so and and I try to when someone wants to take a lesson from me, and 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 one thing, Bobby, also Bobby Shu again, he he told me he said, "We're you are your own best teacher," and what that means the way I interpreted that was when you pay someone for their time and their information, you're paying them for their time and information. They're giving you information. 
this is again giving you their opinion on how things work and how you should approach playing and it kind of become your coach it's up to you to go home and apply it yeah you are teaching yourself i mean if you if every student would just think about that say you're teaching yourself you're gathering information if you can't sit next to john frost then pay somebody or pay John Frost to take a temple lesson if you don't have the opportunity. I mean, if 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 there's a, a particular thing you want to learn, you got to choose the right teacher to try to show you how to do that. I mean, um, I've had students come to me and they want to learn how to improvise, and I say, well, I can show you to a degree, but I I would suggest you know I used to send everybody over to Mark Colby, who passed away last year, but. And the trumpet players, I used to send them over to a jazz tenor sax player because then you're not going to get hung up on all the geek stuff with mouthpieces and trumpets. You're going to be right. really dealing with music. I've had some people come to me, they want to improve their double tonguing or triple tonguing. I send them over to a, an orchestral player, you know, because uh, I'm working on those things too. I can, I mean, you know, my uh, ability to double tongue and triple tongue is a good standard, you know, it's acceptable to play any show or anything, but I'm not sitting around playing Scheherazade and stuff either too. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, so I think the students, they need to really investigate and do some research on each one of these people they decide that they want to study with. Because I'll be honest with them if I say, well, you know, I may not be the right cat for that. And, and it would help. I'm helping them by saying, yeah. go see this person. Now, there's some things that I can really help people with, you know. And yeah. and I then I tap into, well, how did I learn that? And sometimes it, it, you can teach by, by example, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know there's kind of like uh, I look at teaching from almost like two different perspectives, right? So there's there's one, like you were saying about um, learn everything you can from everyone you can. Uh, so that's the experiential thing. It's that everyone has a lesson that they can teach you and whether it's uh, the lesson of what to do or the lesson of what not to do. So, I've, had lot, I've had a lot of people be great examples of what not oh, to do. Oh, <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. After 35 <laughs> years on the road, I've seen a lot of stuff. It's like, you definitely don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. So it's like keeping keeping your eyes and your ears and your and your your head open. So you got that side, but then you have the mentoring side, and that's a little bit different than just like taking a lesson. That's when you when you want to have somebody who's really going to guide you through things, and that's where I think that the personality really comes into play because uh, to have that really good student teacher relationship, that mentor mentee relationship, you have to be able to connect on a level deeper than just the information. There has to be some level where you can, uh, where you're able to vibe together a little bit more. So it's that difference between, okay, I'm just going to get the basics over here, but when you really want to dive deep, I think that's when you have to have a, a very special relationship like, like you've obviously had with Bobby over the years. Um, you know, you just got to find that person that, that's able to speak to you in a language that you understand. Well, I mean, you, first of all, you, you have to be civil. And you have to have good basic social skills. You have to have some sort of decorum where there's some manners. Are there trumpet players that fit that category? Uh, yeah, 
Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, you know, but I mean, you have to have good communication skills. You, yeah. I mean, you have to create an environment that's going to be conducive for the student's education. You can't mm-hmm. have a bunch of distractions going on in your pad. Um, and I have things to inspire them. You know, I mean, I, I've, uh, you, and I still, because you know of the pandemic and everything, restored mutes. I have, I have, and I have my own collection of restored mutes. I have those just laying around; they can try them all. And I have like different mouthpieces. I got horns laying out, and so I create an environment that's conducive to them learning and to the to put their interest, you know. And you know, and there's records, and we can listen to records, and they can come hang with me in my musical environment. So you got to create that. But even still. When it comes down to uh, stressing a certain point or, or concentrating on a particular application, there has to be a good one-on-one communication, and you have to make you have to be able to tell if your student is distracted, or if maybe uh, they're hungry, or if uh, they're you know obsessed with something that they have to do in the future, or something that happened to them the day before, and. A lot of times when a student is, is getting ready to prepare for an audition, they're, they're thinking so much ahead about what they have to do that they forget to be he, in the here and now. Exactly. So that you can actually work on it and don't think about it so much. And let's just, you know, calm down. And I have them look around and play with the different horns. And let's, let's talk about you playing through this thing and let's slow the speed down you know and just let's and get them to repeat it more and more and more and let's bring the tempo up a little bit to where it's supposed to where they want it you know but uh, you have to create an environment that's I'm serious about this you know it's like I want them to come out of there just blazing trails. I want them to be the best trumpet players that they can possibly be, and I want them to be happy. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a that's a very important point too. Is that uh, I mean, you, you see this especially like more in the uh, the classical world, I think, but uh, but in also other arts like dance and and stuff like that that uh, there's so much pressure put on the student for uh, this high level of skill that they just absolutely suck the joy out of the process. Well, you know, it's because it's such a competitive field and, and there's so much obsession now with like, who's the best, who's the best lead player, who's the best high note player, who's the best color, who cares? You know, the actual players, all we want to do is get the job done. Like I said that in the beginning of this interview. It's like, how about just being a professional, showing up and doing a good job? Let everybody else decide who's the best, you know? Because and the students get obsessed with that idea. If I can't be the absolute best at this, then, you know, then they get... Uh, they get hysterical over it. I say, why don't you just do a good job and play this thing nice and let everybody else decide if it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world of music. You know, it's like, I mean, take some of the uh, burden off of yourself by, you know, trying to hold yourself up to such a high standard. If it doesn't sound as good as Maurice Andre, you know, it's like, I, I suck. You know, it's like, 
man, I'm sure Maurice Andre didn't think that when he was coming up. I'm, I'm because he loved. You could tell by the way he played you, the films I see him. He just loved it so much. He didn't care. I mean, he he just wanted to play. He just wanted it to be beautiful. He was trying to create beauty for the listener, you know. So when when these uh, students they go in to do these auditions, instead of trying to be like absolutely perfect and the best player that ever lived, how about creating some beauty for your auditioner? How about doing a performance of them, and whether they like you or not. I'm when I leave this room, I'm going to at least play something pretty. Yeah. You know, that's, there's something to be said about that. I mean, this, this is music and this is an art. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a big competition 24. I mean, it's a competitive field, but don't let that take over from the beauty. The, you know, it's like, man, why don't you just don't forget about the music. It's like, everybody's so obsessed with, Who's the greatest in the world? Who's the greatest saxophone player in the world? The greatest bass player? How about the second greatest or the third greatest or the fourth greatest? There's some bad mofos. Yeah. You know, it's like, man, and, and I determine um, I what, success sometimes on how much is he working? Yeah. I mean, how busy is this cat? How busy is this woman? How busy is this girl? You look at somebody like uh, Allison Balsam. She's constantly doing guest soloist appearances with major symphonies all over the world and doing uh, instructional videos and everything. She's probably pretty good. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, it's like, especially about auditions. Why don't you just go and play some music for whoever is going to be an auditioner and, and show them some beauty and some love and some human emotion and some soul you know well i mean it's like we if we took a sports analogy on that you know it's like because it's kind of a cultural thing i think a societal thing where you see so many players uh who are obsessed with being the best player in the league or the best player on their team and as opposed to you know i would for me personally speaking i would rather be you know the the 10th worst player on a basketball team that was a dynasty than to be the best player on a team that never won a championship. You know, it's about making the team better, about being that, you know, whatever I did helped us to achieve a level of greatness more so than the individual greatness. Well, yeah, like <clears throat> to that point, um, when one of the things I do with my local students here in Chicago is, is I bring them on local gigs with me. And I, I clear it with the band leader. I, and there's there's this one student I have, Grace Mulvey, and she's just, she's got so much talent, she's going to be great. I bring her and sit her in the trumpet section. There's some next to me, next to Dave Katz or something, I bring her in Pete Ullman's band. And I, <clears throat> and I give her practical experience of just playing in the section. And I say, all you got to be is, is, is be cool, be quiet, and just sit there and, and do the gig. And I, and I give them some practical experience. And uh, what I try to show them is just do what you can do for that band leader to make his band sound good. When you show up the gigs, it's kind of like, 
how can I serve you and your band? What can I do to make your band sound good? And when I bring these students on the bands with me, I say, that's the intent. What can I do to make you a more popular band leader so people will want to hire your band? And then that's going to turn around and make you sound good. And then you're going to be on a band that's busy. So that means financially, that's good for everybody. Don't go in there on a gig and say, I'm going to be the star of the band and I'm going to stick out and I'm going to like hang over on high notes and stuff. It's like, no, your job is to make that band sound better than it was, you know, Yeah. to serve. It's the same thing as about teaching. You got, you want to go in there and you want to serve, you know, and, and I believe me when I was a young man, and I was first starting out and I, and I started discovering my upper register. I made all the mistakes in the world. You know, I mean, I, I used to draw attention upon myself and, and it's taken all this time for me to grow up and find out what, what my job really is, you know? And, and when I was working on the Harry Connick's band, I mean, I had a carte blanche. I had a green light for, he used to write stuff so high and he wanted me to hang that stuff over past the cutoff. One time we were on a record date and I had a high A written at the end and we were between second trumpet players that we would use on the road. So I, I said, well, you got to get Tony Cadillac and Tony Cadillac, it was, it was songs I heard or something album and, and Tony Cadillac sit next to me playing second. And Tony is such a great oh, yeah. guy to have in a section because he listens and he, he would, he would follow me like white on rice, you know, and he's a great soloist and believe trumpet player in his own right. And he's such a humble cat. He, he said, oh, okay, I'm going to go play second. And he made everything sound great. But Harry wrote this high A and I cut it right off. And in those days, Harry was not into overdubbing. It's like, if it's a take, he didn't like, he'd make it play all the way from the beginning to the end again. And he, and, and it was a beautiful take and we cut it right off. And, and uh, he said, and he said, Roger, he said, man, I want you to hang that over, note over at the end. And I want you to kiss it off. And Tony started laughing <laughs> and he was going, Oh man, because Every time a recording would come out and I was doing that, I would get crap from Bobby Shue saying, man, why are you hanging over like that? Everybody knows who's playing a lead. You don't have to do it. And I say, Bobby, really? Harry wants me to do that. And and he didn't believe me, you know. He mm -hmm. thought I was just being, you know, like on some kind of a ego chip or something. And And I had had a discussion about that with Tony. So Tony started laughing because he knew what was going on in my head. So we had to do to take over again. And I thought I started calculating, calculating in my head, how much am I, can I hang over to make Harry happy, but get the least amount of crap from Bobby Shue <laughs> when this record comes out. And, and it was during that period of time that I started growing up a little bit. And now, I mean, because, Outside of the world of Harry Connick Jr. and his big band in the, the world of music, you know, in the, in the entire world of music, in the world of the music business, it's frowned upon to hang a note, a note over past the conductor's cutoff. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's like you generally don't want to be doing that. And so, I mean, I do a lot of shows now and I do a lot of recording and man, I'm right off on everything. I mean, more than almost to a fault. Now I cut off be, sometimes before some of the other players do it because it got to be such a thing. Now on Harry's band, it, it was a, that was a different thing. And it, it, and it was kind of an exciting uh, effect. Mm-hmm. You know, Harry really liked it. And he kind of wanted it, you know, and for that band, okay, it's kind of exciting. But I had to watch myself because I had carte blanche. I had a green light on, on doing that stuff. And I finally, towards the end there, I started not really wanting to do it. And after 20 years, that was one of the things that led to me and the size of the band had gotten cut down. It wasn't the big band anymore. And mm-hmm. it was kind of like, you know, and I, I met my wife and I wanted to get off the road after 35 years. So a lot of things uh, contributed to me 11 years ago, finally coming off and settling here in one town and actually becoming part of the local musical community for the first time in my life, even though I based myself out of a lot of the different towns, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so as far as um, the interpretation and, and playing and, and doing what the leader wanted, that's what the leader wanted. That's what he wanted. When I go and I bring my students on bands around here, I say, you kind of figure out what this band is about and see what you can do to make it sound good. And you'll work because they will appreciate the fact that you have their best interests in heart. They're the ones paying you. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're not doing them a big favor because there's a whole bunch of trumpet players that can play. Yeah. Well, that's, that's some very sage advice there from you. (laughs) Coming from me. Yeah. 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 So, but, but you know what, that, that actually, um, That, that, it's a great story because, yeah, a lot of people do listen to uh, to some of that stuff. And I know that that I certainly have, have listened to tons of the recordings you did with uh, with Harry, and you know, the, there was that that almost I wouldn't say almost like a rawness to the sound. Yeah, which I mean, I, I think you know I can see because it's consistent throughout the recordings. Uh, that he, he's done it was that, intentional that's what he, yeah yeah it's that that's it that's that new orleans kind of you know that's, they l- wanted that man yeah wanted a little raucous wanted a little bit of rough around the edges but man it certainly worked and yeah. and like you were saying earlier you you had such great players in that section you know uh tony uh dan leroy who well, tony, just, tony was just on a couple of recordings and and mm-hmm. tony didn't want to travel with the band, but when we needed somebody, like when we were doing a TV show, mm-hmm. or a, a, a big special at Radio City Music Hall, and we we were in between one of the section players, because not everybody wanted to stay on the road for her, Tony would come. And I'm telling yeah. you, man, he is a joy to work with in a trumpet section. I mean, he's just such a complete musician. But to, to get back to what you're saying, I've become very conservative with with my playing, you know, in the last few years. And, and there's one point more, more point I want to make about all that. Um, you know, during the, the, the 20 years that I traveled with Harry, I mean, when you're on the road every day uh, and you're moving, we moved around every day, 
we'd drive all night after the gig. Um, the show is a two-hour show. And of those two hours, you're really only playing about an hour or an hour and 15 minutes worth of music. And most hotel security uh, officials frown upon there being a lot of trumpet playing going on in the room. So basically, I was only playing like maybe an hour and a half a day, as opposed to now, I practice in 30 increments all through the day, whether... Whether I work or not, I, I play no less than four or five hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so the equipment that I was using on Harry's band, because he wrote everything way up there. It was not uh, your typical Lee Trumpet book. It was an unusual book that was written about a third higher than most Lee Trumpet books were. And if you're only playing an hour and 15 minutes a day, I needed to rely on smaller equipment to survive it. Remember, back to surviving it, because we didn't come out of the womb with little trumpets. We're not supposed to be doing this, you know. So I wanted to survive the gig so I could continue doing the gig. I didn't want to hurt myself. Any one night, I could not afford to hurt myself. So in that situation, during those days, I was playing small equipment. Now, because I play so much i mean if i have a four hour engagement i'll play for an hour in the morning and then when i come home i'll play for another hour i mean i do four or five six hours a day whether i work or not i got more girth here now um i don't play equipment that small and i'm getting a much fuller sound and i have more range than i had when i was on harry's band i mean the smallest mouthpiece i play it's it's my lead mouthpiece that that uh, Peter Pickett has designed for me. It's got basically a Bach seven rim, and so that's equivalent to like a Reese forty one rim. Yeah. And the depth is a little deeper than a Reeves medium bowl. So it's th this mouthpiece that Peter Pickett made me, and and I liked the. The blank is almost like a Giardinelli blank, not quite, but it's mm -hmm. a little different from a Giardinelli blank. This is like uh, uh, a Reeves 41M with mm -hmm. a 28 drill. That's the absolute smallest mouthpiece I play. I find myself doing most of the recording here at home and when I go do a session. Most of it is stuff that's in the mid-register. Um, uh, I have a Bach 7D mouthpiece, which is what Frost played. I have a 7D mouthpiece, and I can play up to a high G on it, and, and I have a lot of flexibility, and it gets a nice sound, especially if I'm in a trumpet section where everybody else is playing a Bach mouthpiece. I mean, if, if, if I'm working with Art Davis and uh, Doug Scharf and uh, Dave Katz, I, I'll use a Bach mouthpiece because the sound of a trumpet section where everybody's using a Bach mouthpiece, it's like now we're talking like the old days in New York with Bernie Glow and and uh, Marky Markowitz and and uh, Chris Griffin and Jimmy Nottingham where all them cats were playing Bach and that's why those sections sound so good, you know. So, I mean, 
when I have an opportunity to, if something's only written to a high F or something, I'll do it on a Bach mouthpiece now. Um, if if I'm playing on the New Standard Jazz Orchestra or Pete Ellman's big band or Joshua Jern's band, where all those books are written up to like a double high C, I'll use this mouthpiece that Peter Pickett made for me, which is like a seven rim. It's like a little deeper than a Reeves M cup and standard back bore. And because I play so much, I've got more range now, which I, which I, it's, I don't even use it, you know, because most books written up to an A, maybe very rarely there's a double C. I have no problem going up there. But the important thing is that my pitch and my control in the mid and lower registers is really solid. And the trombone players and the saxophone players can depend on my pitch being there because Mm -hmm. they like that. I'm trying to please trombone players and saxophone players and band leaders. It's like, you know, I tell my students, the only people who care about high notes are other trumpet players. I mean, and that's a very small slice of the general public, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you know, while, while we're talking about gear, let's just go ahead. We're going to do this segment that I do, uh, which is called Gear Up. So uh, you already kind of uh, thrown out that you're using the that picket mouthpiece as well as the, the Box 7D. And uh, you have um, your uh, XO. Yeah, the 16, the XO Brass 1600i B-flat trumpet. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it, uh, it's a 453 bore horn. Now, there's there's uh, a lot of other uh, horn manufacturers that 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 uh, present trumpets that are considered in the medium bore category. Um, the, a medium bore is de- uh, the bore size of a horn is determined by w- what what the horn is at the valve block, right? And uh, for instance, uh, the Bobby Shoe Yamaha, that's 445 at the valves. That's on the small end of medium. My horn is 453 at the valves. That's like like basically a New York medium, New York Bach medium bore horn is 453. Um, Bobby's horn is 445, but they have a large bore tuning slide on it. That's the, They have that dual bore kind of thing happen, which to compensate for the tightness at the valves, they have a large bore tuning slide and they have a big flare on the bell and and those are great horns you know and and bobby certainly sounds wonderful on that horn and they put a lot of time and energy into designing that horn i like this horn this is 453 all the way through it's a uniform bore configuration which means after the taper of the lead pipe and before the taper starting at the bell tail, the entire horn is 453. And it just slots like a son of a gun for me, you know. Um, it gets a nice full sound. And, you know, the the manufacturing process by by their facilities in, in, in Taiwan, it's like it's, you know, they, they're so consistent. They do a beautiful job. Uh, manufacturing the parts and assembling these horns. So that's why I play for a trumpet. My C trumpet is a is an XO brass C trumpet. My piccolo trumpet is an XO brass piccolo trumpet. And they all just play wonderfully, you know. So um, I've been with, uh, I designed this horn um, 12 years ago. 
12 years ago I've been playing this horn, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I love it. And it, this is still the first one that, uh, I mean, when after I approved the design for this thing, they just sent me one right off the production line. And it's, it's the same horn. I've been playing it the whole time. Um, and I when I put that Bach mouthpiece in it, because, you know, I also uh, play on two symphony orchestras here. I play on the uh, City Symphony of Chicago, which is the, uh, the, the AF of M, the Union City Symphony. I play on the Chicago Educators Orchestra, too, full symphony orchestra. And when I use this horn with those with those bands, I call them a band. Uh, I use Bach mouthpieces. I I have a uh, seven D, and it's, uh, sometimes I'll use a ten C. You know, mm-hmm. and and I'm assistant principal on those orchestras. And this horn it it, it uh, adapts to that sound. You know, and I get that sound. And so it's a very versatile trumpet. And I have the other horns and, uh, you know, I, I, I basically, I have my legit mouthpiece and my commercial mouthpiece, you know, my legit mouthpiece for all intents and purposes is, is that seven D and my uh, commercial mouthpiece is this, this one that Peter Pickett made for me. And it's also got a seven rim. I've, I've gone a little wider. You know, when I was on Harry's band, I was using a mouthpiece, that was a 10 rim and and the one that i would use the v cup for when he would write stuff like when there was 11 double c's in it and stuff it was a v cup mouthpiece that was designed off of the jardinelli mf1 with a straight v not those mouthpieces were made before maynard went to the convex v the jardinelli mf1 was a straight v and it's the inner diameter is about a 12 and I can play those. I mean, I used to be able to play those mouthpieces. If I really forced myself, I could probably still play it. But I'm getting so much more sound out of it. I'm playing a wider rim and a deeper cup. And it's because, like I said before, I play trumpet all day. You know, I mean, it's part. I just have the horns out. It's part of my life. 30-minute increments, you know. I mean, I'll do a half an hour and have breakfast i'll do it in a half an hour i'll have lunch i'll do a half an hour vicky and i'll go shopping i'll do it in a half an hour i'll teach a student i'll do a half an hour i'll teach another student i'll do a half an hour i'll teach another student and then and then i'll have dinner and then i'll come back and do a half an hour man by the time midnight rolls around i've played about four or five hours you know yeah so i mean as far as gear is concerned i've i've i have the luxury because of i have this house and the basement is soundproof i can practice at 4 30 in the morning if i want never gotten any complaints from neighbors because i had the luxury the luxury to play more i've pushed the limits on how big i can go for a commercial mouthpiece well you know that's uh that's interesting uh so when when you think about the the uh the equipment and particularly as you know, you you've gone through your own process here, both of designing uh, your mouthpieces and designing your you know being uh, part of the design of the, of the horns and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you obviously then have ideas of you know what needs to change in order to create the sound that you're you're, you're looking to create. So for your students, because you are you know, certainly an educator. Um, 
what tips do you give your students for uh, when they're looking to to change their gear? Uh, I'm, I encourage them to be normal. <laughs> you know, like it's just yeah, it's, normal is overrated, Roger. I don't know what you're talking you about. You know, why don't you just be a normal player? <laughs> 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 I mean, why don't you just learn how to like uh, own everything between low f sharp and high c and be able to double and triple tongue all the way up there and and play in all keys in all dynamic levels i i mean for instance when i first met Derek Watkins, the great Derek Watkins, you know in 1979 i was when went to england with tom jones and Derek used to do tom jones's gig in fact he did all tom's first recording so he came around and we met and we went to a pub and had pints of beer together and we just talked about trumpet playing and he was a beautiful guy and one of the greatest trumpet players ever. And he said, and he used to call me Roja. He said, Roja, you know, he says, uh, all the notes below low C that's the low register and all the notes above high C that's, that's the high register. And all the notes between low C and high C, that's the cash register. I mean, what he was telling me, here's a guy who could play anything, but he said 90% of the money I make is between low C and high C. So I tell my students, why, you know, and then I, and I say, no matter what kind of a player you want to be, whether you want to be play funk or jazz or be in a rock and roll horn section or or a big band lead trumpet player or a jazz soloist, you have to address the classical idiom. You have to approach trumpet playing as when you're getting your technique together, as if you're going to train yourself as if you're going to be an orchestral player. And then you can play whatever you want, but you got your technique. One of the reasons why Went Marcellus and I'm still answering your question, but one of the reasons why Wynton Marcellus has, has uh, accomplished uh, the impossible, he's a jazz trumpet player who's become a household name. And it's because the general public may not understand quite how sophisticated he is when he I- improvises, what, but what attracts the general public is his sound and the purity of the sound, and his flawless execution of the ideas that he presents when he plays a solo. And it's because of his classical training, and he really worked hard and became a great all-around trumpet player. And, and there are many, many great jazz improvisers who are not household names, and Maybe one of the reasons is because they don't have that clean, flawless sound and technique that the general public just, they gravitate to that, you know? So what I tell my students is try to become a normal trumpet player. Why don't you just learn how to be good? You know, don't be obsessed with being great or the best or, or seeing how high you can play. Why don't you just be good? and do a good job and play in tune and observe the dynamics. In other words, do everything <laughs> that you're supposed to do. Like, and, and actually read the text 
from the Arvin book, and you'll see some great grammar too. I mean, that stuff was written beautifully. I mean, the Arvin book was published in 1859, which was a year before the American Civil War started. And it was published by a guy who was the, the, the trumpet instructor at the, at the Paris Conservatory. And in 1859, there was no middle class. You had the, you had the, the rich people and you had the real poor people. He was obviously a very educated, really rich Frenchman and he was very pompous, too. You read the text from the Arvind's book, the translation into English, and it's like, mm -hmm. man, it, he would have been hard to study with, man, because uh, he, he, he was not going to uh, uh, – he, he wasn't going to take any crap, man. Yeah. You know, and it's like – and so, you know, I tell my students, you know, initially, once you learn how to play with a brass band – why don't you get some experience playing with an orchestra, even third or fourth chair, you know, learn how to go on a band that swings, take some gigs with rock and roll bands, but just why don't you learn how to be a normal player and, and be satisfied with going in and just doing a good job and getting some gigs, just playing. And when I started in LA, I just got hired when I was a kid, I'd be, I was like third trumpet on all the bands and I got to sit next to like John Harner playing lead and Gene Go was on some of the bands playing lead. And then there would be these great jazz players playing all the, and so being third just gets you in there. The third book is a nice book, yeah. you know? And so I tell them, you know, I'll say it again. I say, well, why don't you just be normal, you know, just learn how to play it gets don't try to stick out that what you don't want to do is bring attention to yourself on broadway shows and and like, like i do some of the shows at ravinia and i've done some of the ones here in broadway you just want to play the book and don't there's an art to not bringing attention to yourself but still nailing everything you know and and i'm sure you know exactly what i'm talking about because of all the work you've done yeah it's it's finding that perfect balance, you know. Yeah, of, it's, uh, it's of, of normalcy. Yeah, well, like, I, I do think that uh, norm, the 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 point of normalcy for trumpet players is maybe a little more on the abnormal side of the spectrum, just because of the nature of what we do. You know, all that. I think all that back pressure just uh, does something wacky to our brains. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, like, let's look at some great trumpet players. Let's look at Chuck Findlay, who is he has ridiculous facility on the trumpet. He's got perfect pitch, and he, he can do anything on the horn. I'm sure when he started out, he just wanted to be like fit in and be normal. You know, yeah. you, you look at Al Hurt, who became a big trumpet star, and he, you know, he can double tongue and triple tongue and all. When I, I think he started out on some big bands, just going out and fitting in with the section and being normal. You know, it's yeah. like. Um, like Chris Bodie, you look at Chris Bodie, it's like, and the general public, they buy tickets, they fill up theaters, they hear this guy, he started out just in the studios in New York, a, a wonderful musician, great, beautiful sound, and and he was doing a, a, some top sessions with like Paul Simon and stuff like that, and then he became Chris Bodie, cause, and he's out there. You never hear him playing above a high E or high F, but, he, but he's playing beautiful stuff that the general public just love because of his sound and his and his flawless execution. So, yeah. you know, it's like 
having great technique and, and good pitch and a nice sound will do a lot more for you than being able to be, you know, slamming out double high C's and, you know, and that's all you can do. Yeah. You know, it's like so, I, I know a lot of people with great high shots, believe me. But and with many of them, the last place they need to be sitting is in the first trumpet book, mm-hmm. first trumpet chair. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. in, in, in some of these students, they some of them have like they have the potential to have great high shots. And I and I'm not opposed to helping them develop that. But I want them to be a good trumpet player first. You know, and and I've helped a lot of people develop their range and I have them develop it the right way so that once you get that those extra notes, you're never going to lose them. Mm-hmm. So it's not a shot in the dark, hit and miss process for for you to be able to go in the upper register, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to uh, wind down here and we've got one last segment that we're going to do. And uh, it's brought to us by our good friends uh, from Robinson's Remedies, Kenny Robinson and uh, Richard. Uh, This is the Robinson's Remedies rapid fire round. So uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions that are going to be all over the board, Roger. (laughs) Some of them will be about music. Some of them won't. So is this timed? Well, we could time it. Is this Um, like like taking the Mensa test? Exactly. All right. Exactly. All right. This is the Mensa test for trumpet players. All right. <laughs> All right. So here we go, Roger. Question number one. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, currently or uh, I'd have to say my dad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? Um, I like all the Gary Larson books. All right. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Um, probably something on Spinguli, that that TV show. You know, uh, where they, uh-huh. they, it's like maybe like the Blob or something like that. You know. Yeah, yeah, one of those. Uh, well, one of those. I mean, yeah, one of you those. know, and I love the worst movie I've ever seen. I love watching those movies. It's like, man, <laughs> let, it's like sometimes. I like hearing the worst record in the world because it's just fun to listen to. There you go. All right. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? A uh, meteorologist. Okay. That way you can be wrong 50% of the time and still, and still stay in work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite drink? Um, I'd have to say uh, uh, I drink um, oat milk. And I like uh, almond milk. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't drink it, uh, alcohol anymore. I mean, right. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Um, so as far as now, um, my favorite drink, you know, sometimes when I really want to get wild, I'll go have some really good cream soda. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, it's like my staple during the day is coffee. You know, I go to Starbucks and I have coffee. There you go. Uh, you a uh, cream or or no cream? Uh, oh, creamer. Uh, a, yeah. a uh, an almond milk creamer almond because cream. the, yeah. my wife and I are vegan too. Yeah. So it's like no go. dairy products, no meat, and everything. You know. 
Okay, cool. All right. Uh, you could have a vegan dinner party and invite any three living people to join you at your party. Any three living people. Who would they be? Um, well, uh, a dinner party. I couldn't have just trumpet players because oh. I would want it to be enjoyable for everybody. I'd have like one trumpet player there. I'd probably like invite Wynton Marsalis because he's extremely interesting and a very smart cat. Um, I would uh, I would invite my next door neighbor, and I would probably uh, well Arnold Schweitzer. He's not alive anymore, but you know uh, the third person. I don't know. I can't answer that completely. I gave you two-thirds of it. Okay, you gave me two-thirds. Okay. All right, well, you've got three more chairs there, and they're for any three people from history. So you can invite any three people from history to this party. Well, I'd have Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, and uh, Chick Webb. Okay. All right. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Lacquer. All right, what's your favorite quote? Well, I mean... I, I have to like give you uh, okay. We'll go we'll back up on that. An addendum to that. Okay, addendum. Uh, on my commercial acts and my flugelhorn and my commercial trumpet, I like lacquer. For my symphonic gear, I like silver plated. It just mm-hmm. blends better because everybody's showing up with silver plated horns. It just blends better. So, like my piccolo trumpet, my C trumpet, and my E flat cornet, they're all silver plated. But for for commercial dates, I like lacquer. Like lacquer. All right. What's your favorite quote, Roger? Oh, man, there's so many good ones. The one that just comes to mind because of what we've been talking about. And, you know, I don't have any favorite quote. I, I My favorite quote is the most appropriate one for the situation. There you go. So I'd have to say for what we've been talking about, um, there's two quotes. And they both come from Bobby Shue. Um, you are your own best teacher. And the second quote would be, when your chops feel bad, back off. And when your chops feel great, back off. Uh, I like that one. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm really being terrible about answering these questions. Oh, no, you know, no, you're, you're doing... it just It's just too I can't, I can't, I can't narrow it down to one anything, you know. Yeah, yeah that's okay. It's all good, man. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Um, dying. Okay. Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would you want it to be? One superpower. Well, I, I, I would want to be able to have the power that would make everybody in the planet love each other. And I don't know what power that could possibly be. It would be the power of, of you know, mind or, you know, to influence how whatever power it would take to make everybody in the planet love each other. How about that? You know, that would be and, a and great one. That's actually a terrible answer because it's not like I've described the application of that power. The result of that power would would be that, you know. Well, we'll work, on, we'll work together on a comic book on that. The, yeah, the, Roger Roger Ingram, the, the spreader the, of well, love. Get the spread. <laughs> let's not talk. That's that's back in the seventies, man. That's, well, uh, you 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's go. Next question here. Um, and I know this this one is going to be no problem for you to answer. What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Oh, playing high notes. And what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? And, you know, and it, it's the funny thing is I'm one of the worst offenders. <laughs> you know, and I'm telling you, coming from me, for me to say that, it's got to mean something to you because, yeah, I can easily do it. But you, when when I was out there with Harry's band, and I love Harry. He's like this incredibly talented musical genius cat. And he wrote all that stuff. And it, for it his band, it was completely appropriate to do that. And yeah. I had a carte blanche on doing it. And now I'm I'm just here to tell you, it's overrated to me. It's like to be able to play in the upper register like that, it's like a parlor trick. It's like after you have all this strength and you own everything from low F sharp to high C, you figure out there's a knack for being able to go in there and do it. And after you've discovered how to do it, you almost say to yourself, is really, that's it? And it's like, kind of, yeah, that's it. It's like all of that to do and hoopla is, is, is made because of that. And it's like, yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, it's, to say it's overrated, I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. It's There's appropriate, exciting places to be able to do that. But I have to say, generally, it's overrated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what do you think is the most underrated aspect? Uh, of trumpet playing? Of trumpet playing. Mm-hmm. Is sound. You know, I mean, everybody gets their own sound, but I think I hear a lot of players that I work with, you know, in various situations to where there's the potential there for there to be this beautiful. I don't think people develop their sound as much as they should. I think that there's a lot of people and I hear them play, I say, man, why don't you just think about your sound just a little bit more than you are? And realize that that all in all, that's the first thing that touches people is your sound. You know, um, and so you and you're gonna have the sound that you're gonna have. But I think that some people may. Why don't you just think of like consider it a little bit more than than everything else? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a great great answer. All right. Um, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? I, I would be a, would have been a little bit more discerning about what my goals were. I, I, early on, I became very tunnel visioned about my goals. I just wanted to be this one thing and I ended up being it. But I would have been a little bit more discerning about possibly looking at everything in a bit of a broader picture than I did. Okay, cool. Is that a, does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah that does. And Absolutely. I'm kind of like, really? I mean, yeah. uh, discernment, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. You know. That's good. Uh, and you're going to give your, yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice about life. Oh, be tolerant. How many right. more cash questions have we got? What is this? Fifty. Questions? Last one. 
Oh, last one. All right, I'm last like, one coming up right here. It's, last it's one. Like, is the clock running on this? The clock, uh, the, the clock is ticking down. All right, final question. Roger, what do you want your legacy to be? I mean, it, we're talking about something on my gravestone. Just 100 years ago, people were sitting around talking about Roger Ingram. What's the, the one thing you want to be remembered for or by? Wow. Uh, it, and does this have to do with every aspect of my life or just trumpet playing? Roger. He was honest. There you go. And that's your honest answer? That's my honest answer. Okay. All right. Well, Roger, I can honestly say that this has been an enjoyable conversation. It's always great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge. You're an inspiration to uh, many of us. But well, it's, only- it's, it's an honor for you know for you to ask me here and invite me and to ask me about stuff you know it's like there's so many uh, and i admire you and everything that you've been doing and what you're trying to do with this this whole program that you got i think it's beautiful you know and uh you know i'd be happy to if you ever wanted me back if if, i'd be happy to answer questions and and if just as long as like what i'm saying is helpful Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and we will have you back. I've got I've got some uh, some special events. I'll be coming up into year number two here soon, uh, and so I've got some some new things I want to roll out in year number two of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and and I think that you're definitely going to fit in on in some of those plans. So. I appreciate everything, and if you're interested in learning more about Roger and his approach to playing, uh, certainly pick up his book. Uh, and also, if you want to take a lesson with Roger, you can find the link to his website in the show notes and schedule a lesson with him. I'm here to tell you that he is a fantastic teacher. He's really helped me with a lot of things. He's uh, just a, a really insightful teacher, and as you can probably tell, he just loves trumpet. So uh, please check out Roger and help support him with some lessons. Yeah, the book is called Clinical Notes on Trumpet Playing, and it's it's just a textbook. There's no exercises. And, uh, yeah, any of this stuff and the Peter Pickett mouthpieces and the Mute Meister, I've designed a, a line of mutes that Terry Warburton manufactures and distributes. And uh, you can find all links to all that stuff on, on the homepage of my website, which is rogeringram.com. So, you know, because I'm just trying to make a living here too. Hey, exactly. <laughs> you you got to you, you got to pay for that house. Well, yeah. You know, it's like we all are just trying to get by, man. You know, that's exactly, all. exactly. All right. Well, thank you for spending time with us today on the Trumpet Gurus Hang. And as always, peace and slide grease. We're out.